Hello, his name is Heston Blumenthal. My name is Heston Blumenthal. And this is Bod and Chips. I'm inviting you to climb into my brain and have a great laugh. My name is Jay Taylor. I've been working with Heston for over 10 years as his TV producer, cracking his head open and getting out all the amazing things hidden in there. And that's what this podcast is all about. We're going to be talking about many big subjects, but all held together with the wonderful world that is uniquely human. And that's cooking and eating. On today's show, join us inside Heston's amazing restaurant, Dinner, run by top chef Ashley Palmer Watts. Discover how tasty whale scabs can be and take part in another one of Heston's interactive food experiments in which he'll show you how to change the taste of wine by simply looking at words. Grab yourself some wine, two pieces of paper and a pen to join in. Chapter 1. Dinner with Heston. How are you? Uh, I'm really well. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Excellent. Now, yeah, we must say where we are. So we are back in Britain uh, for a new year, a new podcast, and I am uh, privileged to say we are sitting in the Mandarin Oriental in a private mm. dining room in your restaurant. Painter, where, where are we, Aston? So we're in Knightsbridge. The hotel uh, has been going through a major... Uh, refurbishment um, but at the same time they had a fire in a lift shaft which didn't affect the restaurant at all however it affected the rest a lot of the rest of the hotel so they've been shut for quite some time so we've just reopened and this is your restaurant dinner and we're in the Mandarin Oriental on Hyde Park Corner Wait, am I yeah. right this is the most expensive real estate area in Britain is that right in the world in the it world was. it was the bit the, the, the this and number one Hyde Park which is next door an apartment sold for 140 million pounds for Good a flat. Lord. Is that wow? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Who bought it? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody with a lot of money, I guess. That'd be amazing. And your restaurant is sitting yes. inside and this is not a um a small restaurant either. For anyone who hasn't been here, it's it's very different in uh look to the fat duck, but it's similar in terms of vibe. Explain the Explain the story behind this place. Well, this, uh, I have been working with um, some historians for, by blimey, maybe 15 years now, 15 to 20 years. In particular, there's a group of uh, historians that run the kitchens, historical kitchens at Hampton Court Palace, Henry VIII's old gaff. And they go back to about 1400. Uh, and what they do for certain times of the year, they, they dress in the clothes and they cook the recipes. They've got a massive, humongous fireplace, which I've filmed in front of and, and had many, many perspiration moments in front of that hot fire. Um, and for example, if they were cooking in the Tudor recipe, um, if there were no forks in those days, they wouldn't use forks. Oh, so they cook it exactly yeah. as it was once done. Yes. Despite having... I'm going to read this out to you. These are the, at the restaurant. The menu, uh, the menus have a wrap around them. Oh, yeah. And each beautiful. one has a, a dozen different bits of information. So this one... Oh, so just written on the... So on the inside of the wrap, on the outside yeah. it says dinner by Heston. On the inside, there's, there's something written there which you wouldn't notice, yes. would you? So firstly, the word dinner, 
It used to be, it was, dinner is the main meal of the day. Right, yeah. So it used to be at lunchtime. <laughs> earlier, they used to start earlier. And then with the evolution of gas light technology, the main, the, the working days shifted and got longer. So, so dinner used to be at lunchtime? Yeah, th- think of school dinners. Gosh, I never thought yeah. about that. And I have to say, it tends to be, because um, we have different words for dinner, don't we? Sometimes uh, tea, because uh, in certain parts of the country, we yeah. say tea for dinner and lunch. Yes. So why is this called dinner? So afternoon tea is said to have been invented by um, Anna, Duchess of Bedford in 1840. At this time, noble women took a light luncheon in the middle of the day. And as dinner was being served at an increasingly late hour, the Duchess experienced a sinking feeling between four and five o'clock. <laughs> uh, Poor love. She therefore asked her servants to bring her small cakes and sandwiches with her tea. When she decided to invite some friends to join her, the fashion spread and taking tea became all the rage. So, so she invented what, tea? Uh, it, yes. I don't know how accurate that is if it just happened like that, but yes. So what you're saying is so dinner used to be at lunchtime and then once we got lighting, it meant that dinner could move later in the day? Yes, exactly. Otherwise, I suppose, I see what you're saying. If it's, if it's, it's a moving dark. feast. Huh. It's basically a moving feast and then it extended the day and then, oh, it's a bit long between the eating, so let's put an afternoon tea or high tea, they used to call it. Um, and so I, I'd also like the word, that's why dinner plots the history of cooking and food and eating in Britain. So the menu here is, is reflecting that? Yes. And with the guys uh, at Hampton Court and Ivan Day, who is also, there's, there's, there's Mark... And, uh, and Richard at, at, at Hampton, Hampton Court, amazing. And then Ivan Day, who's in the Lake District, and his house is like a museum to food. Um, and I remember going, <laughs> going there for a lunch. And we were, you know, the French call us um, Les Grosses Bifs. Oui, yeah. It's because, not because we love eating roast beef, it's because we were the leading experts at cooking meat over an open flame, over a fire. I didn't know that. I thought it was a Mickey take because we no, like Sunday roast. It's because we taught the French how to cook in the 1800s. What? We taught the French how to cook? From the palaces in France. They came over to learn because when you cooked meat over a fire, you either smoked it or you cooked it. Right. It was seen to be, if it was cooked and smoked, that was a fault. So they had all these clever things of moving the meat closer, further away from the heat source. Yeah. And... What they do is the rotisserie would have a weight on it. So let's say it was a one kilo weight. Mm. It would turn the spit as it, as it descended. Oh, that's it. Is, that, is this what we did? Yeah. And then before it got to the bottom, there was a little alarm, a little bell. Ten minutes before or whatever, however you wanted to set it. So if you had a two kilo weight, then it would fall down because it's twice the weight of a one kilo weight it would fall down in half the time so this, is, this is this is a mechanical oven yeah basically it's, that's 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 what the brits did and the french this is really interesting because you tend to think of anyone cooking over a spit being tremendously primitive and just someone just slamming it on there turning it around every so often but this is this is proper cooking this is isn't it no proper cooking and in fact the last i think we're in a period of time now which is, for food in Britain, has never been better. The last time it was like this was in the Georgian period, 1700 and 1750, roughly like, something like that, where the chefs of the palaces were all English, British. Then, when the Victorians came along, everything became French. 
because that was seen as exotic? Was, yeah, seen as exotic. I had no idea that we used to be good at cooking. Do you know what I mean? You tend to think of no, historically us I, being absolutely, awful. and that's that's what really got that's what got me. So I've been we've over the years from the book, I've written a book on historical cooking. Uh, I've done presentations and lectures on it. We've filmed, we've filmed in those kitchens. We've we've filmed on boats, old boats, and gone through lots of books and manuscripts. I've always seen you being very inspired about finding things from history and and sort of rediscovering them. I think it's probably one of those things in general we tend mm-hmm. to consider ourselves now uh, by nature by now more advanced than our ancestors but i think the more we've done these things the more we've discovered actually that's not the case and it sounds like no, the same e- with food. i think every generation has uh felt the same thing over the years that, 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 that we're now we're more advanced but not necessarily and um i think it's amazing you know sometimes when you the amount of work that has been put into getting us where we are today has been quite amazing and our lives are becoming more and more well less hard work basically yeah we're making things more comfortable for ourselves and i i've been it was amazed at discovering it was so exciting that the brits have a history of cooking which (laughs) is really wonderful it's amazing and then and then we just did in the 60s to (laughs) develop this um reputation of like being the worst you know um uh, Jacques Chirac said that Britain had the worst food in Europe, second only to Finland. Oh, now <laughs> this and they was eat time, fermented fish. Yes, exactly. Right. Rotten fermented fish. This is the G7 <laughs> summit, and he said this. It was two weeks before the final vote for the Olympic Games. And the two Finnish representatives gave their votes to Britain. <laughs> so we won the Olympics because of our cooking. And, uh, and I, I, when, um, we are on holiday last, oh, probably a couple of years ago now. And I uh, happened to get on the same plane as Seb Coe, Lord Coe. And then we met for lunch. And, and, I, and, I, and I said to him, I said, look, I tell this story is it true? He said, yeah, there were some other things that happened, but basically, yes, it was. They, they, they saw it. When they heard Jack Chirac's comment, they thought it was disgusting. So they took their votes and gave them, <laughs> gave them from Paris and gave them to it. London. What a way to do it. That's just fantastic. You can hear noise in the background. We are in the restaurant at the moment, and lucky enough, I think we're going to get to actually eat some of the amazing food. We're in the private dining room, which is brilliant. It's kind of it's got a gothic vibe to it, where uh, all the walls are sort of in this red uh, and wood style, and that, the chairs that, are huge. The thrones. red leather, the, the red, red leather, leather is that what it is? Panelled walls with a, with a pattern on. And that pattern was from comes from. I think Hampton Court, Henry VIII. I've grabbed one of the menus here, and just looking at the starters, this is what's on the menu for starters. We have plum meat fruit. We have Earl Grey tea and cured salmon. We have rice and flesh, which sounds fantastically exciting. What's, what's Okay, so if you look at the menu, um, it, there is a date after each dish. Oh, I didn't even notice that. And now that date, so rice and flesh, brackets circa, circa oh. 1390. Gosh, that's really old. It's the first cooking. It's the first cookery book, published cookery book in Britain ever. In 1390. 1390. How oh, exciting! Have you read that? Have you seen that book? 
Yeah, I've got I've got a version of it which is about a hundred years old. How is it written? The menu is it written in a way you can understand? When the F's are the S's, and doth thy take on, um, hitherto aforementioned upon? I mean, <laughs> it's really old, written old fashioned. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to read it and listen to yourself reading the words to understand it. And they use funny words. I mean, and and one of them is a salmon parcel or something, and it says assemble in a small bigness. So that's something you'd write. You're hedging your bets there. Um, so who, we've got. Who was it written for when it was back 1390? I presume. Yeah, it was. It was. Well, it, it was the general public, but it was also a lot of these things were written by the the chefs of the palaces. To themselves. To themselves, almost like as aid memoirs. Oh, just just triggers triggers. What's the reaction to from diners to this adventure into historic food? Is it really? I imagine eating something from 1390 would be quite arresting and and. Uh, yeah, I, I think well, there's this very fine balance between so all of these little the menu wrappers. Mm. There's a dozen bits of information, but it's not rammed down. Well, we don't want to ram it down people's throats. They can just discover it. So, and it's not too intrusive. So if you look at these here, when the dates, because these dishes aren't necessarily original recipes. So I've got the Historic Heston cookbook, which which is a beautiful big book, which I wrote, which covers the development of all the the dishes, but it starts off with the original recipe and then it ends up with the new recipe. How you've evolved it. How we've evolved it. Right. With modern technology and equipment and knowledge and stuff like that. So this date... And this date is when it will be linked to the dish in some shape or form. Because you can't really mm. say when a dish was invented, could no. you? I mean, I think that's something that was always no. asked of us in TV. And we can't do if it. If you then turn, if you turn this over, sources of origin. So meat fruit, 13th to 15th century. Earl Grey tea, the Earl Grey tea cured salmon was inspired by the 1730 cookbook, The Complete Practical Cook by Charles Carter. Charles Carter was one of the, the Georgian chefs. Uh, rice and flesh, 1390, the form of curry, the master cooks of King Richard II. So wow. it just tells you, it tells you where you can see, so if you wanted to, you could go and try and have a look at those books if you're interested. Yeah, the um, sherried scallop came from mm. the Catholic cookbook. Which <laughs> <laughs> I know. Is that, that might be something to do with the whole eating fish on Friday thing. Yes. Yeah, maybe. Because I've got another one of the, the menu wrappers here. It says, Despite having been used by the Greeks and Romans and being popular throughout Europe by the 17th century, the English were reluctant to use forks when they were first introduced from Venice in the early 17th century. Before then, only spoons, knives and fingers were used. Yeah. They were slow to catch on, but had gained popularity by the time of the Restoration in 1660 <laughs> and were in common usage by the end of the 18th century. My, my children were very pleased about that because they seemed to be going back to the 17th century. Not fingers. Wanting to, yeah, fingers. <laughs> I, do you know, I love eating with my hands. I hate it. Oh, especially soup. <laughs> 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 it's something to behold. No, that, right? was, that, well, that wasn't intended at the beginning when I said that. It, that's that's my, my witty, spontaneous <laughs> sense of humour. Do you enjoy eating with your fingers, yeah? I love eating with my fingers because I touch, touch the food. Chapter 2. What whale scabs taste like? Amber grease. Now more expensive than gold, ounce for ounce, was once a common ingredient in cooking. A digestive byproduct regurgitated by sperm whales. 
It was used with musk to give a sweet, earthy flavour to dishes, and it was thought not—it uh, was thought to not only ward off the plague, but also have great aphrodisiac powers. What's this ambergris? Yeah. So when the sperm whales would eat things like cuttlefish or whatever, you know, they've got the what do you call it? Shell. This the scrape, scrapey thing. On the cuttlefish? Yeah, I can't remember the name. I know, the thing you find on beaches, the long, yes. thin sort yes. of shell. It's a shell, right? It's a... It's, a, it's body. Oh, I don't know if it's a backbone, I don't know, whatever. Right, silvery. So thing. they'd eat it, and then it would... They, if they were sharp, it could actually slightly cut the inside, their insides, a little bit. Of the whale? Yeah, and then there would be a scab forming, and then that scab falls off, right. and they go... I don't know, I've never done a sperm whale impression. <laughs> and shoot it out of their blowhole. You, is this, this is real? This, this is real, sounds yes. Like and it bobs around in the sea, getting washed with, <laughs> with salted water right. and dried in the sun. And then... Whale scab. It gets got washed up. Yeah. Some of these things can be the size of like um, five, six, seven footballs put together. Maybe, oh, wow. more, maybe more. I mean, it could be two and a half foot high. Big lump. It's like a. It's like a like a ball of. It's not. It well. It, well yeah, scabby, but it's not. sort of almost. I suppose some of it's not in polystyrene. But then somebody <laughs> decided if you cut it open, there's a little pockets of things. Oh, I'm going to eat that. What? No, that that must have been a you back then. It was. It was. Is it Charles the Second? Oh, James. I might, I'm going to remember this. His favourite dish was ambergris and eggs. Scrambled eggs just covered in ambergris because he could. Because it have, was you so tried, have you tried this? Uh, I've, yeah, <clears throat> I've had synthetic ambergris. And you've used this in, what's it like? What's it taste like? Um, somewhere between floral, slightly rotting, but I mean that in a way that, you know, we're slightly fermented, slight, very, it's actually quite delicate. Um, um, but it's very hard to replicate the real ambergris. And why, why would we want to? Is it, is it smell nice? Does it, is it, it's very, the real one's very perfumed, apparently. Um, Isn't that amazing? Something so, such, such, such a strange origin can be yeah. nice. Yeah, and, and it's, it's like the perfume industry used any smell created by an animal with either to, to, to mate or mark their scent, what, mark their territory. Perfume? Yes. Someone found out that, that um, musk, for example, which is now quite rightly illegal, um, musk, <clears throat> they'd get it from the basically anal glands of the musk deer. And put it in perfume? Yeah. They f- and in the 1800s, they found out that these scents, they're really heavy. It's like a, when a, you know, a, a cat lays its scent. Well, oh, Those okay, molecules yeah. are really heavy. So if you've got something like jasmine or basil, very light molecules that want to evaporate. If you put a little bit of musk or ambergris or something in the mix, it, it's a Klingon. So it will keep the smell on you for longer. That's why, they, that's why they're using and from incredibly Gosh, valuable for that. that's amazing. And does yeah. that work with food as well? And so it will keep the smell in the food or the taste in longer? Uh, yeah, the bigger molecules. So if you think about caramelized onions, yeah. they're big, heavy molecules. Yeah, and okay. they st- the, the smell stays on your fingers for a for quite a long time I'm not sure if I want to eat caramelised onions with my hands but it's, it hangs around yeah uh, whereas basil leaf doesn't and this is to do with the size of the molecule yeah how volatile the molecule is 
Wow. Um, and That's so amazing. when you make the that. mix, you need, you know, you need to, you need to, you think about that. And also the perfumes, the smells can come and go because some of them will, will are more volatile or evaporate. Some of them will stand for longer and then they react with your skin. And I realize now I can smell um, hormones, not all of them. I can smell melatonin. I can smell, it's amazing. It's, it's really fascinating. Your nose is, um, ridiculously good at picking up on stuff you've always sniffed everything i've ever seen you around <laughs> but you pick but up on things i just can't smell I, everyone can do it i, I think you've got to train yourself i've spent so many yeah. years um being aware i think i said to you earlier walking i'm seeing myself as a walking experiment can you smell trouble can I smell trouble? Yeah, it's normally inside me. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> there might be trouble ahead. Here it comes. Oh, wait, it's me. <laughs> Ivan Day, the historian of the Lake District, has a musk gland. Now, he got it from an antique shop. It's like a hundred and something years old. A musk gland from it looks a deer. Like a juniper berry. You open the lid. Oh, my Lord. The smell... It's really, and, and what he did was he, he put this gland, this little dried juniper berry looking thing in some muslin and stuck it in some ice and sugar. Why? He dusted mince pies, Christmas. How can it, so it's still it giving amazing. off musk even it's though it's amazing. not in the deer anymore? Unbelievable. Wow. Uh, he said it's, it's easily over 100 years old. That, never know anything. Have you no. done? We need to do some science on what that actually is and how that's yeah, working. Yeah, I, th I think the process of actually getting the gland is really quite unpleasant for the animal. Right, hence the fact it's now outlawed. Hence it's now outlawed, yeah. yeah. And, and also with the synthetic things. Because I remember you talking to me once about strawberry essence and the fact that actually to, if you squashed enough strawberries to get the taste of a strawberry versus yeah. a synthetic strawberry taste, yeah. it takes an awful lot of strawberries to get something to taste like strawberry. The flavour industry had a molecule called ferraniol which was, I remember, the Pink Panther chocolate bar as a kid. It was what was used for strawberries. But there's more ferraniol in pineapple than there is in strawberries. For some reason, it was just the best they could do at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter three, food served. This is wonderful. A load of food has arrived on the table. What do we have here, Heston? Talk me through what's arrived from our historical, our, joy, our voyage back into history. We have a salamagundi. What's which a salamagundi? Basically, a word uh, uh, that described anything that had a mixture of stuff in it. Is it? <laughs> yeah. There's so many salamagundi recipes. It is an incredible looking thing. It's, it's a salad, I think. <clears throat> it's everything so is standing up. Chris, they're standing Beautiful, up that is. It's braised salsify. What's salsify? Salsify is like a root veg that's like a twig. Looks like it, it's about a foot long, maybe a bit longer. And it's got black skin. And you peel it and it can, <laughs> it can be a bit messy. But it tastes, it tastes delicious. Um, and it's got marrowbone, and it's got with this one. We always have the same thing. There's a cream, a fluid gel. You take the horseradish sauce or the cream, and instead of thickening it with starch or flour, you put the gel in, and it sets it like a bit like a soft brick, springy soft brick. Then you just put it through a sieve, <laughs> and it breaks the gel up. So you have a broken up jelly, but it means that when you taste it. 
Where is it here? Let me taste it. Let me get us some of this and try it. Rub your finger. Hmm? See that cream there? It's it's very, very clean. Oh, my word. And the flavour release is fantastic. Oh, my word. I wish anyone listening could try this. That's sort of like a butter explosion of wonderfulness. It's like butter and gravy's love child, that. It's, <laughs> oh. it's not... <clears throat> you don't, see, if you put starch in it, starch masks flavour. Whereas this is a way of thickening something without, without putting any starch in it. And then there's lots of beautiful-looking lettuce leaves... When's this from, this, this recipe? From which, uh, um, from which era? So this, this is from 1720, and it's a book by John Knott. John Knott was one of the, um, the palace, uh, the um, kind of royal palaces, stately home chefs. was at a restaurant, and this, he was in, this is the Georgian um, period of cooking. Oh, look at this. So there's a little wooden block in front of us, and on it is the most perfect-looking plum. It's deep, dark red... It's got a lovely green leaf in it, but I, I know from knowing what you've ordered that that is not a plum, is it? It's not a plum. If I cut so Heston's through. cutting it open, and oh, look at that, and that slides right through it. Wow! So inside the, the plum outer skin is uh, a pate. Yes. So this is the meat fruit that this I've is heard the meat about. Fruit. Now, this is the plum version. Well, around that Christmas, we changed the, the mandarin to a plum. So that casing, it's a chicken liver parfait. Very carefully, so it's really nice and smooth, and then it's wrapped in a slightly spiced plum jelly. Um, and and where does this where does this come from? This comes from the historians at Hampton Court. Um, one of the it's the first recipe, first historical recipe that I really did, and uh, and. Um, it was called Pom Dore, Pom for apples, Dore for glazed. Okay. And it was, it was pork and veal minced up into a ball and turned on a spit and basted with a parsley custard. That's what they did. Uh, and I think, it was, I think it was the most photographed dish in the world. Your version? This version, yeah. Yeah. Well, Someone it is, told me. It's, it's a thing it's of beauty. The, it's got <laughs> My word. This is Henry VIII's, so 1400, something like that. It sort of works that something that decadent would come from Henry VIII. Yeah, yeah, I don't, but I, yes, I'm, I'm not sure how decadent it was. <clears throat> oh, it was, it was decadent, yeah. Ridiculously yeah. cool. So from, from the, from the oh. dining room of dinner, this is a, a voyage into history, but also with the Heston twist, an utterly delicious voyage into history. And something you're continually still learning from, aren't you? You're always delving into history to find these. Yeah, it's one of the things that the more, I think, the more I discover, the more I realise, the less I know. <laughs> if that makes sense. Journey, journey to the centre of the earth, backwards and forwards at the same time. Chapter four, a multi-sensory experiment. How to change the taste of wine by just reading words. Get yourself a glass of wine, two pieces of paper and a pen to join in with this multi-sensory experiment. As you've always said, this is a multi-sensory podcast, which means anyone listening can join in with the experiment you're about to do on me. And I believe today, once again, Yoda, you're going to be doing one of your Jedi wine tricks on me. Yes. Uh, what's and this going would on? also work with something like, imagine if you had a, a green juice, a veg juice, that had a bit of sort of fruity, like apple and lemon 
juice in it or something like that. You need, <clears throat> and um, oh, actually next time we'll get a guitar. It's really simple. <laughs> okay. You pluck a guitar string, go really high. It, the drink tastes more acidic. Oh, we'll do that next time. Yeah. What I have here in front of me now is I have a very nice glass of wine. What the same, just one glass of wine. And Heston has two pieces of paper yeah. in front of him. Uh, what so, are we doing here? And what are we? Oh, right. So the piece of paper both have the same thing written on. They yeah. both say so wine. wine. One is in roundy balloon letters with no corners, no jaggedy bits. Yes, yeah, huge and the balloon other writing. One is written in jaggedy bits. Oh, yeah, that looks like sort of um, heavy metal writing. It's yes. all edgy and, yeah. So, have a sip. Have a sip of the wine, okay. Yeah, and what you're looking for, just so you know, is, is sort of creamier, softer or sharp or more sharp, depending on the two sips when you look at these. So, if you have a sip looking at the round, the soft round letters of wine. Okay, so nice I'm going to drink wine and look at these big bubble yes. writing which says wine. Okay. Okay. Now do exactly Lovely. the same, have another sip, and then you look at the jaggedy. Oh, come on, that's so weird. How does that work? It's so the second one, when I looked at the jaggedy writing, yeah. it felt more is acidic. The thing, I felt it in the back of my throat and yeah. a, bit, a, bit, a bit harsher. Yes. When I looked at the first one, it was beautiful and... Uh, soft and round. Soft and round. Just like the letters. How can that... So, so looking at something... Yes. ...is changing... How I taste. You've got to explain yes. this. How is that working? <clears throat> because your, um, the, the, I believe that the brain, the head, the senses developed in the way they did to protect our changing gut. So you think about it. When we used to go foraging and hunting, we had to be very careful what we ate. We needed all of our wits about this. Because an animal could have jumped out of the bushes. Yeah, you know, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Life, life, in many respects, has thankfully become more comfortable. But what it's done is we've lost the the ability of our senses. So by seeing this, I'm seeing something of, of danger. I see that, and I think danger. You're just yeah, you're just making sure. So you're you're you see, you think, you hear, you touch, then you taste. So this is connecting together my eyes and my mouth really closely. And yes. even, though I, <clears throat> even though I was looking at it and you told me it was an experiment, it yeah. still affected me and it still works. So now try... Okay. Heston's got a fork in his hand. Am I picking yeah. up a fork, yeah? Have a sip. What, while holding a fork? No, just have, have a sip. Okay. Uh, again, without it. And okay, then. so I'm picking up the wine, just having a normal sip. Yeah, now have another sip so Heston's whacking a glass with a fork oh yeah so again it did the same thing because mm -hmm. as you were whacking it I naturally ended up pulling that face when something's a bit loud yeah. yes that yeah. face yeah. and again that changed the taste changed of the, the wine yes this is because I know you did the one before where you have to think about bad things but this one is so visceral it's so it it seems really simplistic. I'm looking at different writing, but the fact that changes it, and the sound as well. Uh, yes. Why does if you do the sound and the picture <clears throat> at the same time? Does it double up the effect? Oh, that's right. Oh, let's have a go. Here we go. Let's have a go. Right, so bubble writing. So bubble writing. Bubble writing, drinking wine, looking at bubbles. You could even stroke the microphone. Oh, yeah, the microphones are really soft. Okay, I'm, so I'm stroking the microphone. Mode. Okay. Now. Well, that's really nice. That's lovely. Right, now I stop that. Now I'm looking at the jaggedy writing that says what, that says wine. 
oh, and look at your face, look at your face. <laughs> that made it really unpleasant to drink it. Was that even stronger? That was much stronger because I was my face, I was sort of squinting slightly as well as I was drinking it. You have to try this at home. It's really simple, but it is bizarrely effective. And yeah. uh, you can uh, do experiment with this yourself as well, because by the looks of things, we can take it as far as you want and, and try even all sorts of things. Even by looking at something stainless steel, even by looking, so if you looked at this, touch it, touch this. Yeah, soft microphone. Yeah, and, and then taste. And then drink the wine while looking yeah. at the soft microphone. Then. Oh, it's lovely, yes. Yeah. Now hold that. Hold, so I'm holding a silver spoon and looking yeah. straight at it. Yes. It's, it's a very silver spoon. This is sort of... It's, it's made it colder. It made, made it, it taste colder. colder in my mouth. Yeah. It made it taste colder. This is... I know you keep doing these things. I mean, I know <clears> they're bizarre, but this is... I know the, the thing you said a lot is about connecting us and making us more aware of our senses. And I think a lot of this is, is as I'm doing it, I'm becoming much more aware of the things I'm touching, the things I'm looking at, the things I'm feeling. There's a lot more to come. There's and a lot more to come. Do try this at home and do let us know how you get on on the Instagram because it is... It works really well. And try new things, other, try other things with it. For anyone listening, just I want to say thank you for giving things a go. Because I love that. I love that. I love, you know, we like to share discoveries. And hopefully it will get to the point when maybe, the, and it's already happened, people then, you guys listening, and you've been doing and experimenting, come up with some of your own ideas. Have a go. Just have a go. That's a great thing. Send them in. We'll have a go. We'll have a go. You'll you'll certainly have a Heston. We'll certainly have a go if you send it in. Yes. Yes. Send it in. I'll have a go. Thank you, Heston, once again for a voyage into wine experiments, amazing food, and trying wonderful things. That's all we've got time for. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Do try these experiments and let us know how you get on. Time to say goodbye, Heston. Oh, that was a mouthful of risotto. Goodbye, Heston. Sorry, guys. I don't know why I got taken by surprise because we are sitting here doing a podcast. It was as if you just walked in the room then. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening uh, and thanks for experimenting. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours from. And remember, if you like it, Please rate, review, and get in there and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs>